We have quite a few gardeners in our congregation. And so I just have a question for you. And that question is, how does your garden grow? Now I know that if I were to begin to talk to some of our gardeners here about that, they might talk to me about planting at certain times of the year. They would talk about um, how they might prepare the soil a little bit, and they, they might talk about certain fertilizers and, and that, that sort of thing. But when you really come down to it, and you start talking about how does your garden grow, the reality is we don't really know. And if I were to start talking to the gardeners about making their gardens grow, about just getting down into the soil and forcing that seed to produce life, there's not a single person here that could accomplish that because we just don't know how. And with that thought in mind, I'd like for us to think about a different garden that we're growing. And I just want to share with you a little bit about my personal experience in this room. Back several years ago, about 13 or 14 years ago, I was in a training program in college with a preacher that is considered by many in the non-institutional churches as being an expert on congregational growth and personal evangelism. And so, having worked with him pretty closely, I kind of gained a love for studying those kind of things. And I've read all kinds of books about congregational growth and personal evangelism. I've talked with all kinds of preachers about it. Whenever I've heard that anybody's having any kind of success, I immediately start talking to them about it, want to know what are you doing, why do you think it's working, uh, and so I have to admit that because of that, in those quiet moments when I'm not being quite the person that I ought to be, sometimes I begin to think that I also am an expert at growing congregations and growing souls. And I think in those moments, you know, if I could just get everybody to listen to all the wisdom that I've collected, then surely all the churches could grow. But recently... In my reading, I've been reading through the book of Mark, and I came across a parable in Mark chapter 4, verses 26 through 29, that basically just kind of slapped me in the face, and it put me in my place, and it pointed out that I perhaps do not know as much as I sometimes like to think. This is a seed parable that is akin to it's more popular and more well-known, sister, the parable of the sower. We find that parable earlier in Mark chapter 4, and we all know that one that tells us about the different soils and the fruit that came from it, and the, the last of the soils, the good soil. The seed there produced good fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. And immediately following the explanation of that parable, Jesus told this further parable of the seed. And I'd like for us to examine this parable tonight, the, the less well-known parable of the scene, and see what we can learn from this passage about growing God's garden. In Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 26, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Before we examine this parable, would you pray with me? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for allowing us to be a part of your plan. Father, we're thankful that you use us to spread your gospel so that, that we can be useful in your service. And we ask that you would help us to be strengthened, to plant and water the seeds, to take the Word and take it out to the world that they might see it 
and be drawn into your kingdom and that they might grow to maturity in your service. Thank you so much for forgiving us through your Son. We have sinned so greatly and so often. We need that forgiveness. And we thank you that you provided that through your Son. Help us to, to remember that sacrifice and to always look to Him so that we might overcome the tempter. Father, give us the strength and the courage. Provide us with open doors that we might spread your gospel, that we might shine your light through our good works, that we might shine your light through talking to people about your Son, that we might shine the light by talking to people about your church, that we might shine the light by talking to people about your Word. Help us to have a lifestyle of spreading your gospel so that we might plant those seeds and that you might cause the growth through that. We love you, Father, and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. The part of this parable that really got me was the part where Jesus said that he plants the seed and he goes out and he sees it growing, but he doesn't know how. And here's the reality. When it comes to spreading the gospel, when it comes to that seed lodging in someone's heart and growing and producing fruit there, the reality is, just as I can't go out and, and tell you exactly how that seed that's put in the ground grows, I, I really can't tell you how the gospel works in anybody's heart. We just don't know. And this is important, because what this tells us is that when we believe we have come up with a foolproof way to spread the gospel, we haven't. When we believe that we have come up with the one set of studies that everybody ought to use, we haven't. When we believe that we have established the program that every church ought to follow because this is the way to save souls, it's not. This passage points out that we just don't know how it works. And when I, when I read this parable just recently, it kind, of, it kind of allowed some things to lock into place for me because I, I keep being confused. Because I'll talk to one person that seems to be having a lot of success at, at studying with people and even baptizing people. And, 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 and they'll point out some things. They'll say things like, well, I'll tell you what I found out is that door knocking just doesn't work anymore. Anybody heard that? I've heard that a lot. I've said that. Door knocking just doesn't work anymore. But then I met a fellow who said, well, I don't know why they keep saying that. I'm having all kinds of success door knocking. He says, I go knock doors. I get a study every hour. And he's studying with people and he's baptizing people. How does that happen? That is because, you know what, we just don't know how it works. I hear some people that say, I, I talk to folks that I see are just baptizing lots of folks, studying with lots of folks, and they'll say, I'll tell you what I do. I begin by developing a relationship. And I make sure that I get close to them and I, and I draw them in before I start trying to talk to them about spiritual things. And that's, and that's how I'm having success. It's the, you've often heard it as they don't care how much you know so they know how much you care approach. And it's working for, these, for, for some folks. And they'll say, you know, the reason why other folks aren't having success is because they're not developing relationships first. But you know, the funny thing is, I talk to other people and I've got one person in mind, probably the one person that I know that has baptized or been instrumental in the baptism of more people than anybody I know in the last ten years. And he says, I don't understand why people say that. He tries to take every conversation he has with everybody to a spiritual point and starts talking to them. And he's had more studies than anybody I know. See, it's working one way for one person, working a different way for another person. I've heard some people say, you know, we just can't do anything like what they did in the New Testament where we go stand on the street corners and just start preaching. And yet, just a few months ago, I heard about one fellow that's having some success. You want to know what he does? He gets a sign and says, are you interested in a Bible study? And he goes stands on a busy street corner. 
a pedestrian busy, not, not just cars. And he's getting studies. You know, basically what I've learned is there, there's no one method. There's no foolproof way. Because we don't know how it works. And when we start trying to say, I've analyzed it, and I've figured it out, and I know exactly, and we need to do this, and we've got to take this step, and boy, if you do that, you're going to foul it up. You've got to make sure to do it exactly this way. And yet the fact is, there are myriads of ways that people are actually getting the gospel out. I know folks that they've come up with a certain set of studies, or even one study, and they just oh, this is the only way to do it. This is the best way to do it. And I hear their studies, and I think they're great, and I use some of them, but then I find other people that are having just as much success, and they're doing something completely different. All teaching the same gospel, of course. But it just drives me back to what this parable says in Mark chapter 4, verse 26 through 29. We plant the seed, and we don't know how it works. And so why do we try to act like we've quantified it, we've figured it out, and there's one way that we can figure out to do it, and that's exactly what we need to do. We just can't. Because that's not the way the gospel works. That's not how our garden grows. But there's a corollary point that comes from this. If we don't know how it happens, that means that we can't make it happen. We cannot force the seed to grow in anyone's heart. If I were talking to gardeners, they might tell me about the fertilizer they would use. They would talk about how they prep the soil and the various chemicals that they might use, if they were going to use that. But if I were to talk to a gardener or a farmer and say, all right, I want you to just get down in the soil and I want you to force that seed to grow properly. Is there any gardener in our midst that say, oh, I can do that. I can get down into the garden and I can get down into the soil and I can make that seed grow exactly the way it's supposed to. We can't do that. And we can't do that with the gospel either. And because we can't make it grow, that's when we have to remember what our job really is. You see, God never gave us the job of making the seed grow. We've heard this before. We've talked about it before. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In fact, we read this passage in this morning's lesson. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants to whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. God is the one who makes the seed grow. We can't make the seed grow. God makes it grow. So what's our job? Our job is not to make it grow. Our job is just to plant it. Our job is just to water it. Our job is just to get it out there. You see, we're not successful because we've had so many baptisms in a year. We're successful when we planted so many seeds in a year. And that's what we've got to start thinking. How many seeds are we planting? It's God's job to give the growth. He has to account for that, not us. It's our job to plant and water the seed. So how many seeds have you planted this year? Because that's our job. When we consider this, there's a secondary principle that we need to keep in mind. When I can't make the seed grow, when I have in my mind that I've got to make it grow, that's when I start trying to come up with that foolproof way. I'm trying to figure out exactly when I need to say something, exactly what I'm supposed to say, because I'm so afraid if I don't come in at just the right time, you know, if I mention something a little bit too early, well, I might blow the whole deal. 
Or if I don't say it in just the right way. Or if I don't use just the right set of studies. Then I might just botch the whole thing and they'll never believe and it'll be all my fault. And then we get into an analysis paralysis. We're spending all our time trying to analyze and know exactly when we should speak and exactly what we should say that we don't ever say anything. And I'll tell you what, there's only one guarantee in this whole thing. If you don't plant the seed, it's not going to grow. Now, we know that one. You might plant seeds that never grow. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But if you don't plant it, it's certainly not going to grow. When we think about this issue of trying to figure out exactly when to speak and what to say, it reminds me of a story that, that I think illustrates this point. Some of you might remember the sermon that I presented a couple of years ago about religious history and where all the churches came from, and we looked at some of the denominations. In fact, uh, Phil was with me uh, uh, just recently as we went through a study with some other folks going through that exact same study. I use it a lot in personal work. And it's a hard-hitting lesson. And a lot of people don't like it. In fact, when I preached that exact same sermon in Beaumont, Texas, it upset some people because it named some denominations and talked about some things that were done and how we don't do those things. And on Thursday morning, there were a group of ladies that came into my office and they just let me know that, you know, we can understand if you're doing that in a private study, after you've gotten to know somebody, and you know whether or not they'd be offended, and on and on and on, that would be the appropriate place for that. But don't ever, ever preach that kind of lesson when somebody might be a first-time guest in our assemblies. And here was the really ironic thing about that. They had come to me on Thursday morning. On Tuesday night, we had baptized a guy whose first visit was the night I preached that, and we got to study because he wanted to know more based on that sermon. Look, I have no doubt that some people will hear that sermon and absolutely pick them off and they won't ever listen to another word I say. But here's a fellow that we baptized because he heard it. We can't make it happen. We don't know what's going to happen. There's no foolproof way. We just got to do what we can when we can and let God worry about whether it's going to cause the growth. Now, I'm not saying, brethren, that we need to be reckless and that we need to be careless. I'm not saying that we should be unconcerned with the way we sound or what we say to people. I'm just pointing out that neither you nor I know exactly how the seed is going to lie in somebody else's heart and exactly what's going to happen. Neither you nor I know how to make it grow. So let's not get bogged down in trying to figure that part out. Let's just get out there and spread the seed. The third thing that I learned from this parable, if we plant the seeds, they'll grow. Even if you've never seen the movie, which, by the way, I haven't seen the movie, you know that one field of dreams? What was it that he, he, he would hear this voice that said, if you build it, they will come. What this parable is saying to us is, if you plant it, they will grow. If we're planting the seed, if we're watering the seed, what this parable points out is that the seed will grow. Remember Isaiah 55? <clears throat> Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. In Isaiah 55, verse 10 and 11, Isaiah wrote, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God says, my word has been sent out so that it will save souls and it will not return to me void. That is exactly what it will do. Now, don't misunderstand me. And don't misunderstand either this prophecy or the parable in Mark. It is not saying that every seed we ever plant will grow. 
Remember, with our parable in Mark, this parable follows up the parable of the sower, which pointed out really only a minority of the seed that we plant is going to grow to begin with. All right, we already understand that. So it's not saying that every seed we plant will grow, but it is saying that when we plant seeds, seeds will grow. And when we think about the Isaiah passage, it says that God's Word will do what it was sent to do. We have to remember John 12, 48. John 12, 48 says, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The word was not only sent to save souls, it was also sent to judge those who would not believe. And so God's Word will do that. So please don't think that that means every seed we ever plant should grow. But what it does mean is that if we are planting, seeds will grow. And if we are not planting, that's just a no-brainer, isn't it? If we're not planting, seeds won't grow. And they won't produce fruit. Fourth, even when we've moved on, the seed might grow. And really, the reason why I make this point, it's not that this is just a direct statement in the parable, but I think it's an implication that we need to understand, is that since I don't know how it grows, and I can't force it to grow, I have to understand that the seed will not always grow on my timetable. And there may be situations in which I believe that I've done what I can do, and nothing's happening, and I move on, and think that it's over. But I don't know how many times I've heard stories from folks that said, you know, I planted and watered and nothing happened, but years later, I heard that that person had become a child of God. And where did it begin? It began back with the planting and the watering. So don't ever give up hope, even if you have to move on and start working in another field. You never know when that seed is going to grow if you've planted it. I'll give you a good example of this. John chapter 7. In John chapter 7 and verse 5, talking about his brothers, Jesus' brothers, it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. I mean, there was Jesus right there with them, talking about some major seed planting going on, but it didn't look like it was doing any good in his brothers' lives. But then we look in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Jesus ministered in the world for three years and his brothers didn't believe. It looked like the seed wasn't growing. But then it grew. So that happens. In fact, I can tell you some stories. I remember talking to one elder's mother one elder's mother who pointed out how she was converted said she went to a gospel meeting and the preacher just absolutely made her livid. She was hot. She said, I am not ever, ever going back there. Ever. And I'm going to show him that he is wrong. And see now today when a preacher does that to somebody, we say, oh, bad preacher. Oh, that's awful. You should never do that. Well, she went home and started studying her Bible trying to prove him wrong, and guess what? She couldn't do it. She became a Christian. 
I can tell you another story. This one was absolutely amazing. This was back when I was in Beaumont. There was this, this fella who was uh, dating, dating this, uh, this woman. They were older than me. They were dating. And he'd been kind of, at that time, kind of off and on and sporadic, but, but he brought his girlfriend with him. And I'm telling you, it, it just didn't seem to matter what happened. Every time she came, she got mad at something. She got mad at me. She got mad at the other preacher, Max. She got mad at one of our meeting preachers. She got mad at one of our elders. She got mad at one of our deacons for something he said in the announcement. I mean, it just seemed like a lost cause. It, it didn't matter what we were talking about or what we did. We said something that made her mad. And we had just decided that we just hoped that, that the young man that was going to marry her could survive it because we just were certain that she was going to take him off with her. They got married. Out of the blue, one Friday, she called me at my office. Edwin, I've got to talk to you for a minute. I thought, oh, great, what have I done now? And she started asking me some Bible questions. And to tell you the truth, here's what happened. She and her husband would pray every night before they would go to bed. And one night after their prayer, she, he said something in the prayer or said something while they were talking. I don't really know exactly what happened. And she said, you know, if I die... Think I would go to hell, well, don't you? And I don't know his exact response, but it was basically, you know, in the long and short of it, when all came down to it, it was, yeah, that's exactly what I think because you haven't obeyed the gospel. And she called, and we talked, and that very Friday she was baptized into Christ, and now she and her husband both are two of the strongest workers that congregation has. You see, the reality is, the seed doesn't grow on our timetable. We can't make it happen, and we don't know when it's going to happen. And so don't give up hope. Just plant the seed the best you can, and let God take care of the growth. And let Him do it on His timetable. And don't spend all your time being worried about whether or not we botched or the preacher messed it up. Especially don't think about that one. But just let God cause the growth. Number five. One of the last statements in the parable really got to me too. It said, when the grain is ripe, at once he put in the sickle because the harvest has come. When the grain is ripe, he's patient. And what we learn from this is we've got to let the seed grow at its own pace. I'm afraid that sometimes what happens is we, we plant the seed, we water it, and we see a little sprout come up, and we jump all over it and we're ready to harvest fruit off of it, and it doesn't work. And when it doesn't happen just that quick, sometimes we kind of back off and think, well, okay, I guess this one didn't work. Better luck next time, we tell ourselves. I've talked to folks who take a look at Acts chapter 2, and they see that Peter preached one sermon and baptized almost 3,000 people. Or they look at Acts chapter 16, where Paul and Silas are in prison, and they're just singing hymns of praise to God. And with one contact, the Philippian jailer became a child of God. And Lydia by the riverside in her household. And they'll say things like, you know, I want to find those people. You know, I, I, I'm tired of having to get involved with these people where you've got to have 16 studies with them before they'll be baptized. I want to find some of those one-study people. Or then you'll have guys that say, you know, oh, it's got to happen because, boy, I see it happen in the New Testament. So there's got to be one study. There's got to be a study out there. There's going to be something I can say in one contact that will get them baptized. And they try to come up with that. I'll tell you what, I've had some... I've had some good luck. I've had opportunities where, in fact, after one contact, people were baptized. That religious history lesson, I remember studying that with one couple. 
We got done with it. One of the points you make at the end of it is we don't want to get saved the way these creed books say. We want to get saved the way the Bible says. And they got it. And they said, well, wait a minute. If we were in that church, that means we got saved by that creed book. So what's the Bible say about how we're supposed to get saved? And so we went through it and we baptized them that night. They're still faithful Christians. Uh, the study that Ken Craig taught us. That's a great study. I like to use that one. And there's, in fact, been someone that I've baptized the very first study that we had. They didn't stay with us. Y'all, I'm almost afraid to mention their name lest I get the cops called on me again. But they were baptized after the first study. But I've studied both of those things with other people lots of times and had to study again with them later. And had to study again. And there's some of them that have not been baptized yet, but there's others that have been baptized. You know, see, the reality is we have to let the seed grow at its own pace. Let's not try to come up with this one-stop shop that I'm do this lesson. If they're baptized, good. If not, I'm moving on. We have to let the seed grow at its own pace. And when it grows at maturity, then we can bring the sickle and harvest the fruit. Because that's the way it works. We can't come up with our one shot that's going to make it or break it. That's going to decide whether we stick with it or move on. We just keep plugging away, planting and watering as long as we're able. And let God cause the growth on His timetable, not on ours. And finally... When we take a look at all that we've seen from this, it says we must at least do something. We think, look at these other points. We don't know how the seed grows. We can't make it grow. And so we just have to plant water. If we plant seeds, we know they will grow, sometimes even after we've moved on, and we've got to let it happen at its own pace. Do you realize what all five of those points drive to? The real point of this parable. The real point of this parable is that we've got to do something. We don't know exactly how it works, so there's no sense in us sitting back trying to figure out the one thing we need to be doing. We've just got to do something. Invite folks to the meeting. Make sure to sprinkle comments about the Bible and Jesus in your conversation every day. Try to ask people for Bible studies. Go door knocking sometime. Have a home Bible study. Invite people to our Bible classes that we have. Just do something. And as long as it's scriptural, it really doesn't matter to me what you do, and it doesn't really matter to God what we do. Look in Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, we know the parable of the talents. Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. And we know how the story pans out. The five-talent man went and invested his talents. He got five more. And the two-talent man went and invested his talents. He got two more. And the one-talent man, he got into analysis paralysis. He got into trying to figure out exactly the one right way to make sure that his talents would compound and he could get that back to the Lord in some positive way. And so instead of doing anything, he did nothing. And the master's response was, you know, you should have just at least put it in the bank. You should have just at least done Something. And we get so caught up and afraid that what we're going to do is not going to work that we don't do anything. And guess what? That doesn't work. 
What Mark 4, 26-29 is telling us is that we've got to at least do something. And so it leaves us with one final question. What are we doing? And it's not enough, brethren, to say, well, our congregation is having a guest evangelism program. Our congregation is having a gospel meeting. I'm kind of involved in that because I put a couple bucks in the plate every week. We each have to individually ask, what, what are you doing? What seeds have you planted and watered this year? We've got to at least do something. And remember, remember, the issue is not how many people we baptize. The issue is how many seeds have we planted. It's God's job to get into baptism. It's our job to plant and water. God will cause the growth if we're doing that.